Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about the grown-up inner work of aging and adulting. My first guest is Dr. Connie Zweig. She is a retired therapist and author of several books. Her newest, The Inner Work of Age, Shifting from Role to Soul, extends shadow work into late life and teaches aging as a spiritual practice. Connie has been doing contemplative practices for more than 50 years. She is a wife and grandmother and was initiated as an elder by Sage Ng International in 2017. After investing in all these roles, she is practicing the shift from role to soul. Welcome, Connie. Thanks for joining us on the show. Lisa, it's so good to be with you. It is a pleasure to have you here and a pleasure to talk about this paradigm shift from role to soul. And I would love for you to just, you know, define what that looks like in your view and experience. Yes, I'd be glad to do that. So we are experiencing globally a new longevity. We are experiencing a time between retirement and death that's unprecedented. It could be as long a period for some people as the time from birth to college. So what do we do with this new stage of life? It doesn't even have a name yet. And my many people are developing encore careers and reinventing themselves with volunteering and it's quite beautiful in many ways and with creativity. My point of view is a little bit different. My point of view is that this is a time for contemplation and self-reflection, for reviewing the lessons learned, and for moving out of all of the roles, the roles of work, the roles of family, uh, the roles of responsibility, to a deeper identity to an identity with a spiritual essence, our spiritual nature. And whether we call that soul or higher self or God or spirit isn't important. But I'm describing an internal shift in identity from what we do to who we are. I love that. And it is something that I think about in my life. And I think about it in context to my age and where I'm at in the world, but also in being the primary caregiver of a 96-year-old elder in our family and talking about her place in the world as having now been retired longer than she worked in her career, which is a very interesting place to be. Yes. 
So that's, that is the other extreme, I think, of what you're speaking about. But I wanted to jump into your career teaching and writing about the shadow. And many of us out there might not know what or who the shadow is or are. <laughs> I'd love for you to share uh -huh. a little bit about that. Uh-huh. Well, in my books, Meeting the Shadow, Romancing the Shadow, and Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, I explore how our personal unconscious operates in our lives and sabotages our conscious intentions, whether it's in our relationships or friendships or at work. Um, there is often or in addiction or in moods, there is a part of us that sabotages what we desire, what we are trying to do. And Carl Jung, an eminent psychiatrist in the early days of psychology, called this part of us the personal shadow. And he differed from Freud. You know, Freud said that only our worst impulses were hidden in the unconscious shadow. But Jung came to understand that anything can be repressed and buried in the unconscious during our lifetime including our creative talents, our athletic aptitudes, our feelings of any kind. It, what, what doesn't get expressed as we're growing up gets repressed into the shadow. And so I kind of happened onto this and it became extremely important to me. And in, in, in the end, it became my career. Um, as a psychotherapist for 30 years, people really came to me to do shadow work. Um, so the new book, The Inner Work of Age, is about meeting the shadows of age. And I mean by that the unconscious inner obstacles to aging consciously, to really aging well, the parts of us that don't want to grow old, the parts of us that resist the truth of what is the parts of us that are um, in denial or fighting against what's happening in the aging process. Let's talk a little bit about the unconscious biases that we hold in society about aging. So our culture, Western post-industrial culture, is very ageist in the sense that we value youth and youthfulness. We value productivity and independence and self-sufficiency. And so what happens is that the qualities that are opposite those go into the shadow. And as we begin to slow down, as we begin to be less productive or more dependent, we don't feel self-acceptance. We strive mightily to stay young. And so I call this shadow character the inner ageist. It's an internalized ageism from the larger culture and the ageist institutions in which, with which we're surrounded. And it's a um, shadow part of us that leads to all kinds of serious consequences. There's actually research out of Yale now, um, a psychologist named Becca Levy has been studying this internalized ageism for decades. And she's actually found that it has 
um, impact on our memory, on our brains, on our physical health, on our emotional health, and on our will to live, and even on our longevity. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, talk a little bit about what that means and what the work revealed, what her research revealed. Well, when I found her research, I realized I had another book to write. I hadn't been planning on that at all. (laughs) But because she found a way to connect the unconscious internalized ageism in many thousands of people to these health consequences, I was kind of blown away. And so in my language, what that means is that there's an unconscious part of ourselves, which I call a shadow character. And in the book, I call this part the inner ageist. And if that part of ourselves is running the show, then we're in denial of aging. And we're in denial. If we're in denial of the, quote, negative parts of aging, then we're also in denial of what we call the treasures of late life. Because we can't find Um, the potentiality, the gifts of this time, if we don't get through the denial. So I have a way to work with the inner ages that I'm teaching people, and they can become more self-accepting and more authentic and more whole as they age. Let's talk about the process to dance with the inner ageist. (laughs) to make friends with this character. (laughs) Okay. Well, the first step is to recognize it. And so in shadow work, we learn how to center ourselves through some kind of contemplative practice, maybe meditation or prayer, some way that we have of quieting the mind, which might be different for different people. And when we quiet the mind, we begin to tune in. What are all these inner voices telling us? And we begin to detect that there's an inner voice that says, um, like my 89-year-old friend who said to me the other day, I don't want to be with old people. I'm not like them. (laughs) So there's a part of us that's resisting this natural process that's happening. And when we do step one, centering ourselves and quieting the mind, step two, tuning in and listening to these voices, then we begin to hear the voice of denial of age. And the next step is what are the feelings that go with that? And what is that? What sensations does it elicit in our bodies? And when we have those three cues, the thoughts or inner dialogue, the feelings and the bodily sensations, then we can form a shadow character. And we can give it a name and we can give it an image. And then what happens? We actually have uh, material that was previously unconscious that's now conscious, personified as a shadow figure that we can dialogue with and relate to and have a conversation with. So when I began, when I was in my 60s and I began to do this work on conscious aging and I discovered my own inner ageist, I I tell that story in the book, 
um, I was really shocked and horrified because I have had a very political life working on sexism and homophobia and racism. And the fact that there was this part of me that was ageist was really surprising. So now I'm having a different experience because I've done shadow work and I've worked with this part of myself. I saw the consequences that it was having on me and I have a different relationship to it now. And then as a result, I have a different relationship to other older people. So I see them differently. I don't see them with an ageist projection now. Has there been a shift from being in your mind's eye? Is it this? Is your experience the sense of instead of being a senior citizen or an old person to being a coveted wise elder? Well, I like to say that everyone becomes a senior when we have a Medicare birthday. But an elder is a stage, not an age. Yeah. It's an intentional, conscious process that requires us to do inner work to become an elder. So, you know, we might see um, an 80-year-old person who's rigid and bitter and resentful, and I wouldn't call that person an elder. But we might see a 55-year-old person who's really self-aware and open-hearted and has a spiritual practice and is in service to something larger. So that person we could call an elder. So I think this distinction is really important and it's an internal distinction rather than in a chronological or activity-oriented distinction. Um, I don't think we can become an elder if the inner ageist is running the show because it's in denial of what's happening. Of what is. Let's take a break because I know that is what is right now. We have a little bit of a time <laughs> constraint. So let's go there and we'll be right back. To learn more about Dr. Connie Zweig and her work, please visit ConnieZweig.com. On Facebook, Dr. Connie Zweig. And we'll be right back. We are talking about the inner work of age, shifting from role to soul. Before we take that pause, I want to talk with you about my pursuit of perpetual good hair days. Let's face it, there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all solution for fabulous hair. One product that works well for curls might make fine hair limp and dull, and so on and so on. And if hormonal changes are giving you bad hair days, join the club. I'm just wild about pros, one of our new proud partners. Pros makes custom hair care that is personalized and super effective by using natural ingredients tailored to your needs with proven results. First off, Pros starts with an easy peasy online consultation that asks real world lifestyle questions about your daily habits like diet, exercise, life stressors, hair care routine, and more. Pros even asked me about my zip code to learn about things like weather and humidity. Pretty cool, eh? Next up, Pros analyzed all of my answers and determined a unique hair care prescription of products to match my hair and scalp plus goals for lovelier locks. All Pros products are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. My custom blended hair care plan includes a pre-shampoo mask, shampoo, conditioner, and root source hair supplements designed to give me fuller, stronger, shinier, and happier hair. Pros is a carbon-neutral certified B Corporation 
and an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty products. Pros is a healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash happiness. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash happiness for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back, continuing the conversation about the grown-up inner work of aging and adulting. Let's return to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Connie Zweig. So, Connie, talk a little bit more about your journey. You you spoke about the inner ages that resided within you and doing the shadow work necessary to dance more effectively with this character and arrive in a state of elder stateswoman. <laughs> Yes. In my late 60s, I began to feel disoriented, like so many people do, as I contemplated retirement from private practice and um, what life would be about, what my values and priorities would be, would they change in this stage of life. And um, I found an organization called Saging International which was started by Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi um, and has been going on now for several decades. And Saging offers a one-year initiation process to become an elder. And when I checked it out, it just felt right to me. So I went through this process. It was very beautiful. And at the same time, it was missing the unconscious dynamic in us, the shadow. And I realized then that there was something I could write about, that I could basically explore positive aging or conscious aging from the point of view of the unconscious and that that hadn't been done before. So let me give you an example. Um, In the conscious aging world, we um, often advocate people do a life review and the life review process is really going back and in writing, really going back and mapping the key people and events and um, losses and gains and insights that we've had throughout our life cycle. And when I saw that, I realized that that was the ego's life review the conscious life review that we know about. So I developed a method to go underneath that to what Carl Jung called the unlived life and review the unlived life in the shadow, which is affecting us all of the time. It's just outside of our awareness. And so I added the dimension of the shadow to the life review. And so the book is really about um, how to connect these conscious processes to the unconscious processes and just expand our awareness along with our expanded longevity. 
for people who are really interested in emotional and spiritual development in midlife and beyond, we need these practices. We need this guidance. I think this, what you've said is very, very powerful and important. And I, I know that what research and common sense tells us is that at the end of our lives, the regret is not what we've done, but the things that we haven't done. And I think part of this unconscious life review that you speak of allows us to um, bring that material to the surface and, and have a reckoning. That's so well said. It allows us the opportunity to reclaim what hasn't been expressed or completed. So that might be giving and receiving forgiveness. That might be picking up a natural talent that wasn't encouraged by our family and so was buried. Or that might be um, finding a new kind of self-expression in some kind of volunteer or service work. It's going to be different for everybody. But I think what you brought up about regret is important. And I often ask people, what will you regret on your deathbed if you don't do it now? Yeah. And for some people, that's about emotional repair. For some people, it's about an action. For some people, it's about um, creativity. My literary agent just retired, and she's painting full-time after being a businesswoman all her life. And she said to me, I had no idea I was an artist, but I feel this freedom now that I've never felt before. So there's an opportunity to really... Um, find who we authentically are without all the masks, without all the roles, um, without all the obligations and responsibilities. And that's a profound promise for this stage of life. I agree with you. I think that that those actions are our spiritual practice. You know, when we're able to um, dust off or uncover those parts of ourselves and then actually do something with it, you know, bring about an action, even if the action is in, in inaction or something that is done within ourselves allows us to become more full at a period in our lives where society dictates that, well, you know, the leaves are dying and falling off the tree. What you're actually saying, in, in my view, is really planting new seeds and that there is a, a rebirth cycle that occurs in this period of life. It's very possible to experience renewal. Yeah. In order to get there, you know, I, I kind of frame late life as a rite of passage. Um, the old model was that, you know, we peak and we decline, but there's a rite of passage here. And that requires three steps, letting go, stepping into the unknown, and then emerging renewed as an elder. So the renewal happens if we go through this whole process, this rite of passage, and if we use the inner work of age then this very deep renewal is possible. And exciting. I mean, I think and exciting. very exciting what we uncover about ourselves as we step onto this path. And 
you know, I, I, I think I also want to ask you, is it possible? I think I already know the answer that we do this multiple times. In other words, from midlife forward until the end of our lives, whether it's 30, 40, 50, 60 years, I would think that this, this cycle can repeat itself as well. Yes, I think it does. At midlife, the essential question is the same. Who am I? But what happens at midlife is that question often triggers a change in role. Maybe a different marriage, a different career, a different geographical location. But in late life, the change in role is not sufficient because a spiritual renewal is being called for. And that's what I call the shift from role to soul. And by the way, that that is taken, that is borrowed from Ramdas, the spiritual teacher Ramdas, yes. who really used that phrase to mean that we shift our awareness from these personas to our spiritual nature. And that doesn't usually happen at midlife. So the steps might happen of the rite of passage, but the deeper spiritual renewal happens, I think, in the context of impending death. When people become aware of mortality, something else happens. There's this alchemical response that happens, and people want to connect to something greater than themselves and something within that connects with that. It uh, connects to something transpersonal or universal or whatever our language is. And I see what you're saying about that being distinctly different. You know, the awareness of death being closer to that exit door than at other stages in life. Mm-hmm. Yes. It puts a pressure on the psyche. On, we could say on the shadow. It puts a kind of alchemical heat there to speed things up. And whether that is, you know, something unsaid or something undone or something incomplete, we want to feel life completion. And that means different things to different people. For me, because I've been practicing meditation for more than 50 years now, it's really about that. It's really about expanding consciousness and returning again and again to my cushion oh. and practicing. I like that. The cu- the cushion being you, where you meditate, but also the cushion sort of being the the safe spot, the harbor, the sacred, the sacred. Yes, the center of yes. myself. Yes, what you're saying uh, really resonates for me. I, uh-huh. I think this is very, very beautiful work, and the type of work that we don't often give ourselves the luxury or permission to explore. And yet that's it's, right. It's important. That's right, Lisa, because we don't have time. We're in the busyness. Yeah. And as soon as, you know, when the busyness is gone, we're floundering. So that's really the purpose of the book is to provide a map and the practices that we need to return to center and do this work. Dr. Connie Zweig, thank you for sharing yourself and your beautiful book with us. We've been talking with Dr. Connie Zweig about the inner work of age shifting from role to soul. You can find out more about Connie's work at ConnieZweig.com. On Facebook, you can find her at Dr. Connie 
Swag. Thanks so much for sharing yourself with us, Connie. Lisa, I so appreciate your time. Oh, likewise. Let's take that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professions. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. conversation about the grown-up inner work of aging and adulting. My next guest is Ira Israel. He is a licensed professional clinical counselor, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and a mindful relationship coach. Ira graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and has graduate degrees in psychology, philosophy, and religious studies. Ira has taught mindfulness to thousands of people from all walks of life across America. He's also the author of How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening. And he's a friend of the show. We have not had a good hangout for at least five years. Ira, welcome back. Thank you, Lisa. It's such an honor to be here again. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's pleasure and good fun. I have to say that, you know, we are two adults that I know like to have a good time. Always. Always. (laughs) So let's define the difference between grown-up children and real adults. Okay. So for me, you know, language creates reality. So the distinction between a child and an adult is that adults keep their word. I have a great story about this where um, I was selling my car and the gentleman uh, who was buying it was from the South. And we had known each other a little bit. And um, he met me at the bank and uh, I was selling it for $5,000 and he came with like three, but me doing everything in advance, I had already signed the title over. So basically I gave him the title and he shorted me, uh, you know, two grand in cash. And um, then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he reached out his hand and he said, you know, I'll bring you the two grand tomorrow. And he shook my hand and he said, my word is my bond. And Mm -hmm. as a New Yorker, I just thought I just been screwed out of two grand. Like I like that, like just, you know, like I, that's it. I'll never see the guy again. <laughs> it's over like that. And I just went home. I couldn't sleep at night. Like it was a catastrophe. I was like, how, how can I find someone to a hitman to, you know, this, I've done, it was a terrible situation in my, in my mind. And I got a phone call the next day from him. He said, can I come over? I said, sure. He came over and he laid out the two grand and that was done. And, and, and it, but it showed me like the distinction between like, what's a gentleman, you know, like he's, he, he was a gentleman, right. And that, and because he realized that like your word is the most important thing. Like the, like when you say, I am going to do this, I am going to be there. I'm going to be there on time. Once you start breaking those things, you, you can't depend on anyone else's construction of reality. So it, it's, it's imperative that, you know, as adults, we make commitments and that we uh, honor them. And so for me, the distinction between, because kids are willy nilly, they, they're like will of the wisp, whatever you want to call it. And they just like do what they want to do because they don't have great uh, self-regulation and they don't understand the world. So when I, when people are in my office and, you know, I make them, uh, you know, say, you know, like, I'm going to do this. My word is my bond. 
and, and just to get into the uh, the feeling of like, hey, I can construct my reality and I know what it takes to be happy. Um, and that takes, you know, like it's being my word. And the word being the bond is a currency in our relationships. A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Like you and I agree that we're going to show up at this moment and the showing up is an exchange, right? Yeah. And I'll even go one step further because, uh, I mean, I haven't sat with uh, Esther Perel in, like, since pre-COVID, but I love her phrase, monogamy is a gift that you give to your partner. And, yes. and again, it, like that's, that's the most interesting thing. You know, you know, you have the choice to be a philanderer or, or go outside the marriage or something like that. But like when you look somebody in the eye and say, I, I give you, I, I want to be monogamous. That's how I'm going to grow the most in this intimate, secure relationship without having to worry if you're going, uh, you know, like whatever, like, I just want to be secure. So I give you this gift and my word is my bond. Big, very, very, very big, particularly in, in, in our love relationships. And, and when we talk about how authenticity, you know, blends in with this mix of adulting, Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that, because I, I, sure. I know you're really big on this. Well, there's that Harvard longitudinal study that basically <laughs> proved for me that the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness is the quality of your intimate relationships. So as children, we're taught in a subconscious way to develop a false self in order to survive our childhoods and get our emotional and psychological needs met the best we can. But then when you're still using those tools when you're an adult to seduce people into liking your outer self because you're rich and you traveled to wherever and blah, 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 then it, there's this resentment that goes on where all of a sudden you think, well, they, well, she wouldn't be with me if I weren't rich. Like, so she doesn't really love me. And then, you know, whatever bad things about to happen happens. So for me, you have to understand that the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness, if you, if you, if you want, if you want to be happy, then you have to be authentic. You can't go out there being the face uh, we put on to meet the faces that we meet, as T.S. Eliot said 80 years ago. We can't, you can't just be a facade, a persona like the hip and cool person with not, you know, the unseemly, you know, like real internal emotional experience and expect, uh, you know, true secure attachment from other people. Let's talk a little bit about attachment and talk about our aging parents. Some mm. of us are of a certain age. <laughs> Yes. And the style of parenting and the domino 60, effect of that yeah. parenting on our relationships and how we show up for life. Well, I make several jokes in my uh, Esalen workshops, and I say my parents had, came from the Nietzschean school of uh, child rearing. Uh, what doesn't kill it makes it stronger. <laughs> uh, like, let, let it cry itself out. And, you know, for me, 40 years later, when I was studying uh, psychology, there's one um, psychologist who had the Primal uh, Therapy Institute here on Abbott Kinney, Yanov. And he, he hmm. says, when you put a baby down, which actually in our society is a sign of wealth, it's a sign of wealth that your baby has its own room, right? But the first time you put it down and it's preverbal, you say, we'll be back in eight hours or whatever amount of time. And then, you know, you let the baby cry itself out. The baby subconsciously registers that as you're killing me. 
And like, I'm going to die. I, I can't live alone. Like, I, oh, what is this thing? I'm in the dark and I'm alone, right? For the first time. So that is a primal or core abandonment wound. Now, it might be a little extreme for some listeners to think, oh my God, I have this primal core abandonment wound. And then every time like I get fired from a job or somebody, something weird happens, like it's a reopening of this primal wound. But I, I, I really think that the, um, individuation process in our culture, and that would be the first instance of it, is so stark and abrupt that and, tra- and traumatizing that most people in our society, well, even if you listen to Mary Ainsworth in 1969, she would say that uh, 67% of people have insecure attachment. But I think that the people uh, of a certain age. That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's like 90%. <laughs> if, you on, if, you go to, if you go to Tinder or any of these things and people are like swiping right and left, you know, it's really, we live with vast avoidance. Like, no, like there's not a lot of people who are willing to like lean into a relationship. You know, like people are just like, I'm out, you know, like you, you, this is a red flag. I'm like, I'm out. Like you, you didn't, you didn't text me back within three minutes. I'm out. And you're just like, you're, you're like, what, you know? Well, it's, that's, well, first of all, you're dealing with two issues, right? The insecure attachment and then Mm -hmm. the inability to delay gratification, which is a pandemic unto itself. Exactly. Instant gratification takes too long. Yeah. (laughs) If you have to say it, it's already too long. It's it's too late. I wanted it yesterday. (laughs) And you didn't know I wanted it yesterday. So shame on you. Right. We all want the psychic partner who can take care of all of our needs in advance. Yeah. And it's just not going to happen. So the solution is. Authenticity. Yes. Period. You show up and there's going to be good times, there's going to be bad times. And when you're in the good times, you're like, wow, this is amazing. And when you're in the bad times, you're like, this too shall pass. And what about like, okay, you see, you see patients, clients, uh, Mm -hmm. whatever you call them, you see people on a daily basis that come into Mm -hmm. your office with real world problems. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they're, they, they, they are sincere problems. And sometimes there's a lot of manifestations of not real problems, needless suffering. How do you support somebody to look in the mirror and see what's really going on? Well, for me, the glass is either half full or half empty. That depends on how you know you look at it. For, for most of us, in relation to the history of humanity, we have incredibly privileged lives. The vast uh, amount of human beings who ever were born never reached the age of 40 years old. And even 100 years ago, the lifespan was, was I think, half of what it is now. So like, you and I just being uh, our age is a miracle, right? And the exactly. fact that, like, and the fact that we... Um, have three square meals a day and like I get to, I'm going to go to the pool and swim for an hour. Like in, in, after this talk, like, like those privileges, like you, human beings fought and died, you know, for hundreds of years so that you and I can like have electricity, travel on roads, go to university, go to a cafe, all these things that at some point in time, you know, like, um, depending on who you read, like won't exist. Like all the things that we consider to be normal are actually imploding around us. And that's a whole other discussion. But, but really like when people come in and they've recently suffered a terrible trauma, 
then I, I have to basically walk them through the grieving process of reality not showing up the way they expected it to, whether they, whether it's the death of a loved one or, or some other trauma, you know. Um, but then on the other hand, there are people who just don't realize what an incredible miracle this thing that we call normal reality is. Yeah. And then what do you do? Well, then you just keep on shaping it back. You know, so so this goes back to the first part of our conversation, because in the chapter nine of my book, I talk about parenting is the most difficult job in the world, because what you're trying to instill is two is mutually exclusive factors. One of them is healthy self-esteem and the other one is healthy self-regulation. So the healthy self-esteem is done through positive reinforcement. Like, that's fantastic that you used to fork. That's great. What a great baby. And then the other one is through, like, don't use a, don't do this. Don't stick your finger in a socket. Don't. So you're trying to instill self-regulation. But as you and I know, uh, you know, if you go to one of these recovery centers, like, you'll find this plethora of um, negative self-talk. So no baby was ever born with negative self-talk. It got there because of, you know, a, a nasty teacher or older brother or older sister or parents or just something in our society. And, and that's what's interesting to me. Like whose voice is in your head telling you that you're not good enough, you'll never be happy, you need to have this and that and this and that, because as I said, nobody was born with any of these voices. They were inculcated or instilled in some manner. So that's what, those are the things that I try to um, develop a narrative around. And then we go back and we make tweaks and we say like, okay, well, I don't think that that part of the narrative is voting well for your loving relationships. So why don't we uh, lean in to, uh, to some of this and see if we can, you know, like uh, make adjustments. So it's getting rid of story. That's part of what I hear you saying, getting rid of sort of the, the, the stories that keep us stuck, recrafting the narrative with a different ending, or at least a new, a different chapter that offers the, the promise of something being different. And then um, you also talk about dealing with the resentment factory in our minds. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. because, well, As I said, we create a false self. And then what we're doing is seducing people into liking the, the, the outer part, you know, and what we really want. And so the resentment comes when you realize that, like, this person wouldn't be here if this condition and it's a superficial condition. So 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 that's the resentment factory that I talk about. And, and on the other hand. You know, uh, resentiment is again, and sentiment is actually is sentiment, feeling. So when things have happened 30 or 40 years ago that um, your mind says, oh, if this car accident didn't happen, if my parents' divorce didn't be, happen, if I went to Yale instead of Harvard, <laughs> I'd be happy now. <laughs> like, like your mind is built to create these woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't. And you have to understand <laughs> that that's the root of a lot of your suffering today because until you accept every moment of your life and own every moment, you know, you're only causing your own suffering. <laughs> Let's just put a pause there and a pin because we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back to learn more about Ira Israel's work, his book. Please go to iraisrael.com on Facebook, ira.israel.5 and on Instagram, ira underscore Israel. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back and we give you our word. That's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. 
A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Ira Israel, we're talking about the grown-up inner work of aging and adulting. Let's get back to it. Ira, you've run us through several scenarios of how to take greater accountability and responsibility for our lives using our word as currency. Mm -hmm. Let's spin a little bit to talk about spiritual practice and purpose in life. If we're talking about the pathway to happiness... Well, as I said, the only thing that correlates strongly with happiness is your secure relationships. And the only thing that correlates strongly with leading a meaningful life is being of service to others. So looking at your Bitcoin pluses and minuses every day, it does not (laughs) bode well for a long-term happiness. But like making commitments to, you know, could be just raising healthy kids or, or volunteering or cleaning up, you know, plastic by the beach. But it doesn't matter if you want to lead a meaningful life. And then the second part, or actually the latter part of your question regarding spirituality is, so things happen in the universe, whether it's uh, Robert Plant saying he received Stairway to Heaven in a dream, or Paul McCartney saying he received uh, yesterday in the backseat of a taxi cab, or um, you, know, you look at a Titian painting, um, or you know, all these incredible things. And these people will say, basically, like Mozart received all the symphonies. So you have to ask the question, like, from where and why? <laughs> So you have to decide how the universe is operating and then is it conspiring in your best interest or is it conspiring against you? And it's really interesting to me. So, you know, if I if if, if you won the lottery today, not you, but <laughs> if I won the lottery today or somebody else, they'd be like, thank God. But if you got hit by a car today, you wouldn't say, thank God. But actually, it's the same force. Right. So when I my book its goal is to mitigate hypocrisy. So you want to be, you want to believe in a reality and a, have a spiritual component to it of like how these things and why these things are occurring. And I always use the example of His Holiness the Dalai Lama because I was sitting with him in uh, 2009 and someone said, who's your greatest teacher? And he, as the, the leading spokesperson for Buddhism in the West, you expect him to say the Buddha is his greatest teacher. And what does he always say? The Chinese who bludgeoned two million people, uh, Tibetans, to, to death with like uh, hatchet handles. And it was terrible, right? Like that's his greatest teacher is the people who murdered, you know, two million Tibetans. So like for us, we have to decide like, is the universe, all, all the forces in the universe, including COVID, are these things conspiring like for or against us? Can we tap into source and channel a, a, a song or is everything just happening at random and we just go into uh, the coffin and are eaten by worms? 
But like, it really is quite important now. There should be a course like in elementary school, like how is the universe operating? Like when you listen to Astral Weeks by Van Morrison and you know, it was recorded in four days or kind of blue by Miles Davis. I'm sorry, I'm just using musical examples. There, there's tons They're of great obviously. ones. <laughs> no, you can look at the Grand Canyon and same thing. You could be like, like if you, like if you're an atheist, what's the quote? There's no atheist in, in foxholes, right? For, for me, like looking at the Grand Canyon and just like the immenseness and the vastness and the beauty and the way the sun comes up and like all the colors change and you're just there like, how is this possible? Like, I, you can't think that like you're the greatest, highest consciousness in, <laughs> in the universe. There's something weird about that to me, right? When you look outside and you see all the things that are happening. So, you know, it's up to every individual to find what nourishes their soul and decide like, how is that occurring? And then when bad things happen, you're just like, okay, what am I supposed to learn from this rather than, you know, whatever kind of spiral you go into? Well, adversity is our greatest teacher. You know, we don't usually grow when the world is filled with puppy dogs and kitties, you know, it just doesn't work out that way or unicorns or whatever, whatever your image is of life being perfect. It doesn't work that way. No, it's full of up and downs. And again, authenticity, meeting whatever those things. I mean, for me, I always teach uh, Shakespeare from when Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come up to him and he says, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So, yes. you know, there's nothing out there with the way you look at it, but except for the way you look at it, that, that decides whether this is a good phenomenon or a bad phenomenon. So, again, as we start this conversation, the glass is either half full or half empty. It's up to you, not the glass. Well, they're both right, depending on exactly. your perspective, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> both are correct answers. There is no wrong answer. And, and the beautiful thing for me is when you look at the Bhagavad Gita and Arjuna is importuning uh, Krishna about like why he has to go out and kill his, his brethren across the field. And he says, if it were 13 years from now, would, I, would you tell me uh, that I would have to do this also? And Krishna says, no, like because your karma would be different then. I can't predict what your karma would be then. So it's like, it's like there's infinite factors influencing, you know, at every moment, like all the things that are happening and human consciousness cannot perceive one one millionth of them. And but and yet we're so um, committed to like being certain, like I'm not going to float off the earth today. And, I'm, and, and you know, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And my gas bill will be paid through my bank account. You know, we, we have all these things that we want to be certain about. But, you know, like nobody predicted COVID, nobody predicted uh, the World Trade Center's uh, collapsing and, and all those people, you know, dying or, you know, we, they, those people wouldn't have been in the building at the time or we would have d- developed the, uh, the vaccine beforehand, you know, things like that. So it's really interesting just the way people perceive reality and, and choose to interact with it. And when we talk about, you know, the only guarantee being change or the only thing that is certain right. is uncertainty. That's intellectual, right? And then when we talk about like how we feel when all of this stuff is happening and how we 
manage our lives, that is what will dictate how we get yeah, through it. The, that's where the rubber meets the road. Exactly. So to me, that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the segment, which was attachment theory. So you decide in some ways quite early whether the world is a, a, a fragile, like uh, insecure place and you have to be, uh, you have to hoard and, and lock your door and carry a gun or things like that. <laughs> Or if the world is full of grace, abundance, and love, and you can lean into it. So they, all these things that we're discussing, whether it's the spirituality and, you know, because essentially we're all going to get triggered, right? And so the, 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 the question is, when we become this, this triggered, essentially it's the wounded child in us that is dysregulated and then, you know, men punch walls and I'm not just, I'm just generalizing. Like, and women we, like, we cry. Do, like, we, I, we, I didn't want to do that because then someone's going to call in and say oh, you're so sexist. They can, but I'm just saying. I'm saying too. So for me, as a psychotherapist, uh, I have to excavate uh, women's sadness, which is on top, to get to their anger because they're not allowed to show it in our society. We don't like angry women. And then for men, we have, I have to excavate their anger and then get to their sadness because men are really not. I mean, times are changing like very rapidly. But in the society I grew up, you know, I was told, walk it off. Don't be a blank. Uh, you know, like, um, you know, like men are supposed to just like buck up, you know. So um, anyways, you know, I, I, authenticity, when like when you're if you're if you're a man and you're feeling sad or if you're a woman, and you're feeling angry, like you have to deal with that as opposed to repressing those things, because as Freud said, all those repressions come back thrice fold. Yeah. And you know what's interesting? If you ask a group of women how they feel when their male partners cry or express vulnerability, they will all say it's pretty sexy. It's pretty sexy. Yeah. yeah I and, knew that was coming. I yeah, love that. Yeah. And then conversely, when you have a, when a man will speak about his female partner and she gets a little set off, he will say, if she uses it wisely, that is sexy. Yep. Totally. Very interesting. Very. It's super, super interesting. The bandwidth of emotions that men and women are allowed to show and then what's perceived as authentic and then what's perceived as like, um, yeah, it's, it's super, super, super interesting. I love that. I do too. So, I mean, the moral of, 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 of our story or of our conversation today about adulting, you know, you know, meeting the moment with maturity, you know, I, I'm going to do your recap and then you can recap my recap, <laughs> you know, is that, you know, authenticity rules, you know, when we're able to right. show up and be present for what is and speak our truth, you know, and, and, and regulate appropriately, that that is what represents successful adulting. And I'll just add, because we, before we start to speak live. We you mentioned the word from my book, awakening. So for me, the only thing that I would add to that recap is that we have to understand that everything is contingent and thus in some capacity absurd. Like, like, uh, you know, like when you, when, <laughs> yes. you know, when we look back on like, uh, witches burning at the stake, like that was a very serious, uh, that was reality, you know, 300 years ago. And the way people are going to look back on, like, I'm looking right now at the asphalt streets you know, in 300 years, they're going to be like, oh, those idiots, they didn't know that asphalt caused cancer and they could live till 400, right? Like, like we don't know, but we, you have to be pretty certain 
that in two or 300 years, if there's any life left on planet Earth, they're going to look back on us like we look back on dinosaurs, right? Cavemen, essentially. So th that means that everything that is happening right now that we consider to be normal, whether it's a democracy or the university system or Monsanto or, ph or pharmaceuticals or COVID, <laughs> like it's, it's going to pass at some point in time. But when it's happening right now, like we're so like hooked into it that we don't understand that like this is just uh, something that's happening. We're like, no, this is reality. It's not just something that's happening. And and I'll just I'll finish with this. There was a great article in the New York Times last weekend about the um, the institution of the uh, five day work week. And I've been having a lot of discussions about this, particularly since COVID. And, and, you know, like that to me, you know, like who's put on this earth to work 40, 90 hours a week, you know, not like, me, not you. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump off this call and go to the pool. It's 12 o'clock. I'm going to swim for an hour. I mean, like, I mean, I, I started work at six this morning. I don't feel guilty. You know, I put in my six hours. I'll come back this afternoon and take my notes and do a couple more Skype meetings. It's just like. You know, but you have to lead a balanced life and whatever that means to you, whether that means uh, hiking, swimming, you know, going out for coffee, throwing a Frisbee around, like we all need to like reset our lives so that we have secure, loving relationships and we can show up compassionately. And when we get triggered, we know how to like stomp it out pretty quickly so we don't, we don't act like jerks. Oh, beautifully said. And I do like the, the fact that you use the word jerk. I like that. That is super <laughs> authentic. <laughs> Ira, <laughs> thanks for hanging out with me. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much. A pleasure. The book we're talking about today, although the book's been out a while, but it is relevant. It is Evergreen, How to Survive Your Childhood Now That You're an Adult, A Path to Authenticity and Awakening, written by my guest, Ira Israel. To learn more, please visit iraisrael.com, on Facebook at ira.israel.5, and on Instagram, ira underscore Israel. Ira, what a pleasure. What a, what a good laugh with you today, too. This is lovely. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Dr. Connie Zweig and Ira Israel, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.